Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from Russia, Ukraine, Brazil, Spain, Germany, the United States, and a CEO in hell, that's the celebration of a dead right-winger from history from the Italian fascist era. I'm going to start out with the biggest right-wing news this week. You've almost certainly heard about this. This was the attempted abortive coup that occurred in Russia over the weekend. So, over the weekend, the leader of a broadly right-wing paramilitary-slash-mercenary group, known as the Wagner Group, the Wagner Group, attempted to stage a coup in Russia. The leader of the Wagner Group is a guy named Prigozhin, a business person who formed the Wagner Group with a former Russian paramilitary leader whose call sign was Wagner. He formed them together with this guy in 2014, ahead of Russia's then invasion of Ukraine. Now, this was the invasion of Ukraine that involved Russia mainly supporting independence fighters or like sort of creating independence fighters in the eastern regions of Ukraine, the Donbas region. This war ultimately resulted in Russia's annexation of the Crimean Peninsula. After this war, after this first Russia-Ukraine war, the Wagner Group was then operative as a mercenary force throughout the world, especially in Africa and in Syria, where it primarily operated as a paramilitary-slash-mercenary force acting at the behest of sort of Russian client states. Think about Assad in Syria, people like that. Now, what happened this weekend was that up until this weekend, the Wagner Group has been deeply involved in fighting in Ukraine on the behalf of Russian forces and forces in Ukraine that serve Russian interests, specifically the groups that want to annex the eastern parts of Ukraine to Russia, which is some of Russia's most specific and concrete goals in the war, in addition to probably setting up a puppet state in Kyiv in the actual eventual government of a probably technically independent Ukraine. You know, that's probably what Russia's ultimate goal in this war was, right? Now, Prigozhin has been extremely critical of how the Russian government has been handling the war. He's been saying that he's on the front lines and Putin and other leaders in Russia aren't, that they don't really understand what's going on. And to top it all off, he, over the weekend, said that the Russian state forces intentionally fired upon Wagner forces, and also that it seemed like they were trying to disappear him, right? That they were going to arrest him and sort of, you know, pin some problems on him, right? And a purge. He decided that he was not going to wait around for that to happen. He said that he was going to play all of his cards. He was going to take his forces and march to Moscow in an attempt to at least overthrow the military of Russia, possibly an attempt to completely upend the Russian Federation's government and possibly topple Putin, who has been at the top of the Russian pyramid since he replaced Boris Yeltsin. That is when the Wagner Group started to march not in Ukrainian territory, but in Russian territory. They marched on and seized the city of Rostov, which is on the eastern border of the Black Sea. That's the sea that Ukraine borders. And they took the city, apparently without all that much resistance. After that, it was only a 12 to 14 hour drive all the way to Moscow, except that the Russian security forces were trying to stop them. Uh, there was some fighting. There was shooting going on between the Wagner Group and the Russian security forces, we don't know how many of each of their assets were destroyed. We don't exactly know how many of their fighters were killed. But this went on for a couple hours, right? And it looked like there was going to be an actual civil war in Russia. However, 
It seems that Prigozhin did not get the kind of buy-in from Russian state security, from like other members of the Russian security system that he might have hoped for, that might have made this coup actually possible, you know, something that might enable him to establish a sort of South American-style junta, you know, a collaboration amongst various members of the armed forces. And instead, he reached an agreement to stand down. Specifically, this agreement was brokered by the president of Belarus, and it resulted in the Wagner Group remaining in Ukraine, essentially at the behest of the Russian government, whereas Prigozhin himself is going to move to Belarus and remain in exile there, right, under the protection of the Belarusian state. Exactly how extensive that protection is going to be, who knows? You know, the Russian state has assassinated people who have sought refuge in powers that are a lot less amenable to Russian power than Belarus. So, you know, I don't know if I were Prigozhin, I would probably not stay in Belarus for a very long time. However, the long and the short of this is that it has massively weakened the state of Russia. It's massively weakened the position of Vladimir Putin, and it has shown the real power that the far-right paramilitary organization, the Wagner Group, has in the country. If they tried to do something like this again, potentially with more planning, who knows what could happen? And uh, just as a reminder, there were a lot of people on the internet who were really being like, yeah, you know, Putin's finally going to get what's what, and he's going to get what's coming to him, and, you know, he's going to topple as if, like, a civil war in the second largest nuclear power in the world could be anything but an absolute nightmare, not just for everybody in Russia, but for all living things on Earth. This is a terrible situation, and it's precisely what people were really worried about when Putin invaded Ukraine. Moving on to Brazil, the last formally announced hearing for Jair Bolsonaro's potential candidacy is being held today. Specifically, Jair Bolsonaro is being tried in Brazil by the Supreme Electoral Tribunal to determine whether or not he is an eligible candidate for the presidency of Brazil in any upcoming election for the next several years. Now, there are probably going to be a lot of appeals and delays, so we likely won't get the final, final ruling today on June the 29th. But it's possible that we will. And if Bolsonaro is barred from the Brazilian political system, then it will completely transform Brazilian politics for quite some time. Moving on to European electoral politics, two right-wing parties in two countries in Europe that have previously been run by fascists have received big electoral gains this week. These are in Spain and in Germany. In Spain, the Vox Party is in government in the province of Aragon. Vox is Spain's right-wing party, and it's going to be working with the Partido Popular, which is Spain's center-right party in the regional government of Aragon. Vox will be leading this regional government in Spain. This represents the latest step in a major escalation of Vox's power within the Spanish state and within Spanish society. Perhaps more worryingly, the AFD, a party whose name translates into English as Alternative for Germany, AFD wins the equivalent of a mayoral race this week, uh, their first ever victory at this level in German politics, in the city of Sonneberg, which is in eastern Germany. Now, the AFD is a very complicated party. It has some elements that are sort of like about as right-wing as the Republican Party, and other elements that are essentially just like a neo-fascist party. It has tried to mask or get rid of or hide these elements or has variously let their flags fly high at various times throughout its electoral history. But this is its first big electoral success at this level 
in German politics, the first real big election run by a right party in Germany, by a far right-wing party in Germany in a while. This is a worrying success for the AFD, and it, again, just like Vox's success in Aragon, signals a just like the, the eroding of watersheds that prevented these kinds of parties from actually taking power in many European states. Now, a discerning observer would note that what we have here is that Italy is currently ruled by the party that is the successor party to the fascist party. The current ruling party of Italy is the successor party of the Italian fascist party, the essential successor of the Falange of the Spanish fascist party is the Vox party, and they are making gains in Spain. And if there is a successor to the Nazi party, it is probably not neo-Nazis in Germany. It would be something like the AFD, and they are making gains in Germany. These are the three countries in Europe that had the most wildly successful fascist organizations in them. You know, there are a couple other examples, Austria, Romania, etc. But still, this is really terrifying uh, that it's just like it's just like the right wing right wing politics coming back in full force in exactly where it was successful before. Moving on to the United States, some good news relating to the right wing. A Florida anti-drag show law has been struck down this week. The law previously was to prohibit, quote, all live adult performances that could conceivably be attended by anybody under 18. Now, this meant that they could potentially be vaguely applied enough, like this law could be vaguely applied enough to prevent youth from attending, like, a particularly risque musical, like, I don't know, like cabaret or something, you know, like, like you couldn't take your high school class to go see cabaret. You couldn't put it on in school. A minor could never go see something like a Rocky Horror performance, something like that, right? But the purpose of this law, as created by the Republican lawmakers who made it, was to crack down on drag shows, which is one of their real front lines in their attack on queer rights and queer culture in the United States. This law was made unenforceable in Florida by a Florida judge. It is entirely possible that this is going to get kicked up and kicked up again until it reaches the Supreme Court, an extremely conservative body in the United States. Finally, going to close out this week, like I do every week, with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I'm talking about a guy named Italo Balbo, a possible Mussolini successor and fascist poster child from the Italian fascist period. Balbo was born in northern Italy in 1896. As a youth, he was extremely rambunctious and actually extremely rebellious. He attempted to join several rebellions in Italy and actually also supported Italy's joining World War I after like just a couple months, like a couple months after the war started, he was like, hey, Italy should join the war and we should join for the Allies. As soon as Italy did join the war, Balbo joined the army. In 1915, he joined the Italian army. He then started flight training in 1917, but was then quickly moved back to the front after problems with the fighting changed. He ended the war in the infantry, then went back to his studies in his home region and became a blank clerk for a while. However, career then transformed massively in 1921 when he joined the then extremely new Italian fascist party. He did his own organizing. He, on his own, organized his own black shirt squad, that is the Italian paramilitary organization. 
He and the members of his squad in his home region worked for landlords. They were attacking communists and socialists, you know, fascist bread and butter during this particular period of fascist organizing. However, he was so successful as an organizer, as a leader, as a planner, as a military commander, and as a face of fascism, he was extremely young at the time, that he became part of the leadership that planned the March on Rome in 1922. He was the youngest of the group of planners. He was only 26 at the time in 1922. And the new fascist government really took him under its wing once they took power after the March on Rome. He took up various government ministries, including eventually and most proudly for himself in 1926, the Secretary of State for the Air, because Balbo really, really loved airplanes and really, really wanted to be a pilot. Fascists fucking love planes. They love aviation. It's, it's just true. He did his own transatlantic flight, which is probably the thing that he is the most famous for outside of Italy. He did his own transatlantic flights after he became a better pilot. You know, he was not actually a fully trained pilot when he became the Secretary of State for the Air. He specifically made a flight from Orbitello to Chicago. And this is one of the reasons that there is a Roman column in Chicago today that is known as the Balbo Monument. This is also why Balbo, the street in Chicago, is called Balbo. It's because it's near to the place that he landed, right on the shores of Lake Michigan. This street continues to be named after this, not just like kind of fascist guy, a member of the fascist party, somebody who planned the fascist takeover of Italy. And it is a major street in the United States' third largest city. After his return to Italy, Balbo continued to galvanize support and power within the Italian political system. He was appointed the governor of Libya, which was at the time occupied by Italy. And there he helped plan for the Italian invasion of Ethiopia. His plan was to help Italy prevent the British from getting involved. And he did this like real turn along with the rest of the Italian system towards a war footing by the mid-1930s. Eventually, Italy was going to join World War II on the side of the Germans, and this is what they ultimately do, right? On June 10th, 1940, Italy joins what is, you know, at this point starting to already be called World War II. Balbo, at this point, is commander of the Italian forces in North Africa. He's poised to invade Egypt, then a British protectorate, in order to protect Italian possessions in North Africa and also Italian and German territories and protectorates in the Middle East. However, his position in the Italian system is cut down by friendly fire. He never gets to achieve any of his big fascist dreams. What happened was that he was a passenger in a plane flying to an Italian airfield in Libya, which had just recently been attacked by the British. He was killed by flat cannon friendly fire this week in history, June the 28th, 1940. So, Italo Balbo, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism spelled out and all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 Minutes of Fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at hist of the right, that's H-I-S-T of the right, and fascism. 15. Thanks very much, and I will talk to you next week.